From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Federal investigators are treating mass shootings in Texas and California as acts of domestic terrorism. So how is this state monitoring extremist groups? Then two prominent Republicans, President Trump and the governor of Ohio, have raised the possibility of expanding background checks for firearm purchases. Colorado has already done that. How's it working here? Later, quitting e-cigarettes, as if being a teen wasn't hard enough. It's nicotine withdrawal, and it's brutal. It's horrendous, and I would never really wish that on anybody. But there's little support for young people who want to quit vaping. And we remember Toni Morrison with a Colorado writer who can't quite believe she's gone. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Hate crimes in Colorado are up 93% according to new state numbers. That almost doubling is from 2017 to last year. The Colorado Division of Homeland Security identified 185 cases. These new numbers come after a mass shooting in El Paso, Texas, which apparently targeted immigrants. And in Gilroy, California, an Instagram post reportedly connected to the alleged shooter there pointed to white nationalist literature. For how Colorado tracks threats like this, Kevin Klein joins us. He directs the State Division of Homeland Security, and welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What kind of bias-motivated crime is happening here? What are the nature of these events? So the things that we've seen range from homicide to vandalism. Uh, And those are the, you know, anything that has a bias motivation to go on top of a regular crime uh, qualifies as a hate crime. So we watch those. Our main point, though, is to prevent that, uh, prevent those crimes from occurring. And that's where our our effort is focused. We'll talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about prevention uh, in a few moments, I think of uh, a church and real estate office mm-hmm. in Bailey, Colorado, uh, vandalized with swastikas, I think just last month. Mm-hmm. So the Southern Poverty Law Center uh, listed 22 hate groups in Colorado in 2018, among them white nationalist groups, a neo-Nazi group, black nationalist groups. And I found this interesting, a record company in Wheat Ridge that makes what's referred to as hate music. Uh, does the law center's assessment of hate groups align with what Homeland Security considers a hate group here? Uh, no. Um, some of them overlap. There's no doubt about that. A, a great number of them do. Um, but what we actually look at is ones that are prone to have some sort of criminal element to it or prone to violence. And that is a smaller subset uh, than what is uh, recorded by the Southern Poverty Law Center. So that that is to say, they may be focusing more on messaging. You're more focused on the acts and whether those uh, are crimes. Exactly. Okay. What about white supremacist groups in particular? Do you find them gaining more traction here? I think that we've seen an increase in the rhetoric online. We've seen an increase in reports of bias motivated. Incidents. I'm. I'm trying to say that they're not crimes because they haven't been reported as crimes, but they've re- been reported as suspicious activity. And so we've seen an increase in that, and we've seen an increase in, in particular, in anti-Semitic reports that come in as suspicious behavior. 
those are the types of things that we track and we look at in order to get a better understanding of what is going on in Colorado and trying to get that information out. According to the Anti-Defamation League, Colorado is only behind California and Texas last year in white supremacist propaganda. The ADL counted 72 literature drops here with three white supremacist rallies. Uh, What do we know about how these groups recruit? um, That's uh, an example that, that you just brought up, the flyering literature Um, that we've seen. We've seen that uh, a lot on campuses, and that's one College campuses? College campuses, uh, where we've seen that. Uh, We've seen uh, some rallies, um, uh, the American Identity Movement, uh, we've seen them at at rallies. What is the American Identity Movement? Um, It is the rebranded Identity Europa, which is um, a white nationalist group that we've seen in Colorado. You also mentioned the the internet online activities. Is, is 8chan in Colorado something that you pay attention to? Well, until it went down, yes. Uh, we'd, we'd look at 8chan and follow that. We look at online activity primarily to get an understanding of what's being said and how to, you know, some of it is counter-messaging and some of it is is understanding what motivates people there. When you look at what uh, is reported as radicalizing factors, online radicalization has gone from 25% to 56% of the reported uh, radicalization uh, for criminal suspects. So, so this used to happen in person. Now this happens more and more online. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So self-radicalization and online radicalization is one of the things that, that we follow closely. You talked about counter-messaging. So is that something that the state of Colorado is involved in, in responding to these messages? And what does that look like? No, counter-messaging, I think, is a, a good example of that, is what you're seeing with the Southern Poverty Law Center, the ADL, other non-governmental entities are probably better at that than the government uh, doing that. And that's part of our partnership is making sure that those groups are out there providing information that you know is more accurate as far as what is actually going on. So you have partnerships with those groups to do the counter-messaging. Correct. Now, it, it is also important to protect free speech in this arena. Will you talk to us just a little bit about that balance? That is, that's our our conundrum, right? So, uh, when we're looking at these these groups, we're not looking at them as criminal organizations, unless they are, and those are like prison gangs and things like that 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 have bias as part of their their activities. But what we look at is an approach that takes in this overall what what are they saying what are they looking at and at the same time trying to protect their civil rights their right of assembly their right to free speech that's important so we we have to walk that fine line between you know looking at what could be threatening behavior and looking threatening criminal behavior and what is you know, protected free speech and freedom of association. So we look at that closely and make sure that we don't cross that line. The FBI director testified last month that the Bureau already had as many domestic terrorism arrests in 2019 as it did in all of 2018. 
and that, uh, quote, a majority of cases under investigation are motivated by some version of white supremacist violence. Were Colorado's offices to combat this prepared for this to be white violence? Or were you built around the model of a post 9-11 focus on a different kind of terrorism? We grew out of the post 9-11 focus. So we grew out of the Al-Qaeda, the organized um, jihadi terrorism that we were focused on and evolved with the threat. And that threat has evolved from an organized groups of terrorists to lone actors. And now what we're seeing is this white nationalist violence that we're we're dealing with, too. So and do as you, the threat do you, does, we do. We do you change. think that monitoring those threats will prevent mass shootings? No. Um, monitoring, no. No. Monitoring alone can't do it. It's got to be a holistic approach to the prevention element. So what we have to do is bring in multidisciplinary functions. The, the traditional law enforcement model just doesn't work in this circumstance. We've got to bring in behavioral health, public health, social services, non-governmental entities, and take a, a more holistic approach to preventing targeted violence than what we have in the traditional law enforcement approach. Thank you for being with us. Mm -hmm. Kevin Klein directs the Colorado Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Management. It tracks white supremacist groups and other terrorist threats in the state. Before addressing the nation Monday, President Trump tweeted, Republicans and Democrats must come together and get strong background checks. The tweet went on, perhaps marrying this legislation with desperately needed immigration reform. Trump didn't circle back to either in his speech, but Colorado's presidential candidates, Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, point to Colorado as a role model when it comes to universal background checks. Meanwhile, the Republican governor of Ohio has called for expanded checks. So how have they worked here? CPR's Ben Marcus has been following this issue for years. Hi, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me again. It really took a long time for Colorado to get universal background checks. Talk about that. Yeah, it actually came in stages. So uh, after after Columbine, voters voted um, to close the so-called gun show loophole um, that required background checks at gun shows. Um, more than a decade later, after Aurora and Newtown, the legislature closed the private sales loophole. Um, a highly controversial measure. Two lawmakers were recalled over it. That's when um, someone buys a gun from a private party. Exactly, or even loans a gun from them, then they have to get a background check if it's over a certain amount of time. Uh, so basically, any legal transfer in the state of Colorado now, even a loan, has to go through a background check. But this has been uh, iterative. It's taken time to develop. Do we know how many firearm purchases have been denied because of, of these laws? So CBI, the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, started breaking out private sale denials in 2014 after the 2013 law went into effect. So we know that just over two 2,000 private purchases have been denied in that time, so about five years. Since the law's inception, okay. That's right. So see, and that includes gun show and private sales. Uh, CBI says that denials are most often caused by arrests or convictions for dangerous drugs, they say, or assault charges. How does that compare to attempts to buy from gun stores that are denied? 
So gun stores are primarily where most gun purchases happen. Um, so denials are anywhere between six to 8,000 denials a year um, through gun stores, FFLs, licensed dealers, uh, just because they account for the bulk of purchases. In the case of the Aurora Theater shooting, a background check would not necessarily have made a difference. Right. So a lot of gun advocates talk about this, gun rights advocates. Um, The Aurora shooter bought his guns legally. He did not have a criminal record. Many mass shooters actually do not have criminal records. Uh, The Pulse nightclub shooter was on um, some terrorism watch lists, but he still passed a background check to purchase his weapons. But when you talk to law enforcement, sources I have in law enforcement, they say that yeah, it may not stop a mass shooter, but it may have delayed somebody getting a gun if they were denied, and that probably reduced violence. It acts almost as a waiting period. Uh, if somebody's really determined they're going to get a gun, but that denial may have stopped somebody from getting killed. Now, the legislature did try to deal with mass shooters in particular, I think, of in 2013 with a bill that uh, limited ammunition magazines to 15 rounds. Right, so in 2013, it wasn't just the background checks, it was about limiting magazine size, and that was directly inspired by uh, the Aurora Theater shooting where uh, the shooter had a 100-round magazine, similar actually to the one used in the Dayton, Ohio shootings over the weekend. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Um, That law is actually being challenged currently by the Rocky Mountain Gun Owners, a gun rights group, um, six years after it passed. Uh, It's before the state Supreme Court, right? now. And indeed, uh, gun rights advocates have complained about these laws. Sure. So there's essentially been legal challenges against uh, Colorado's 2013 gun control laws the entire time they've been in effect. Um, There was a federal case. uh, Three dozen uh, Colorado sheriffs sued in federal court. That was eventually thrown out uh, for lack of standing, so they didn't argue the merits. Uh, There's that action in front of the state Supreme Court over magazines. But more broadly, guns rights experts say that what lawmakers end up doing is they create restrictions that burden law-abiding gun owners. Uh, The background checks, like having to have one if you're loaning a gun over a certain amount of time, they say is onerous. And the 15-round magazine limit is based on what exactly when most common guns hold 17 or more rounds? And of course, the red flag gun law has also proven controversial. CPR's Ben Marcus on how some of Colorado's gun laws are working. Colorado tops the country for teen e-cigarette use. An estimated 27,000 high schoolers here report vaping more than 10 days a month. But as CPR health reporter John Daly discovered, the state has few programs, scant resources, and little research to help them stop. Jim Lynch started smoking regular cigarettes in seventh grade. He wanted to fit in. But smoking made the rest of his life hard. He's an active person and sang in the choir. So he switched to the electronic kind. I heard all the myths about vaping being a healthier way to smoke and a way to help people that wanted to quit smoking, and smoking was affecting the stuff that I wanted to do. By the time he was a student at Wheat Ridge High, Lynch was severely addicted. Each day he was going through a Juul e-liquid pod. That's equal to a pack of cigarettes. I got really shaky if I went without nicotine for an extended period of time. I got really bad headaches. It would make me sick, like it would make me feel sick in my stomach if I went too long without having nicotine. His choir teacher caught him vaping in class. His school told his biggest role model, his dad. Hearing how disappointed he was when he found out about it was tough. So that's what he said. Um, Jim, I'm disappointed in you. Yeah, yeah. And 
few other words that are not necessarily friendly for radio. So Jim Lynch quit cold turkey, the most achy, irritable three days of his life. It's nicotine withdrawal, and it's brutal. It's horrendous, and I would never really wish that on anybody. He got support from his dad and the school nurse, but he still had to do a lot of it on his own. We have to provide more resources. We have to make it easier for kids to quit. The school nurse who helped him, Rhonda Valdez, referred him to a call line the state runs to help smokers quit. She gave him toothpicks and breath mints to help him with cravings. It worked. Valdez says Lynch didn't start vaping again. He's a self-motivator. He's like my poster child, no doubt. But Valdez says he's an outlier. Most kids need more help than he got. And her district is trying to provide it, doubling the number of school nurses. They'll be able to help students with drug intervention and mental health. But Valdez says with so many students vaping, they're scrambling to keep up. It's worrisome and frustrating. At the same time, the money available to help teens quit is shrinking. That's according to state tobacco strategist Allison Reedmore. It is daunting. That shortfall comes from the decline of conventional smoking. Taxes on cigarettes help pay for state anti-tobacco efforts. With fewer traditional cigarettes sold, there's less money coming in. Readmore says there's no statewide tax on vaping products, so more vaping isn't creating any new funding. More people are using more nicotine products. Our young people are facing an epidemic of vaping. We're not funded to deal with vaping products. And so we've got more problems than we've seen before and fewer resources with which to deal with them. Colorado spends nearly $24 million a year on tobacco prevention, but it's less than half of what the CDC recommends and a fifth of what industry spends on marketing, according to a recent report. Readmore says more young people called the state's free quit line last year, but there's been a cut to in-person cessation programs. I think the future picture is of great concern. Medical professionals like Dr. Christian Thurstone from Denver Health say the teen vaping craze has caught on so fast they're in uncharted territory. Really, we have almost nothing in terms of treatment for these kids. Thurstone runs programs to help prevent and treat substance abuse in young people. He says research has shown the vast majority of teen nicotine users say they plan to quit, but most don't. There's a lot of confidence or a lot of desire to quit, and then at the same time, few who do. He says there are online resources, hotlines, therapy, and coaching to help kids manage nicotine cravings and stop smoking traditional cigarettes. But Thurstone says he could find no, zero studies about adolescents quitting e-cigarettes. We need some research, fast. And he says he doesn't have any evidence to show if the same tactics that can work for smoking will work for teens vaping. No randomized controlled trials. All we have is anecdotes, and we have to assume we're going to treat it like we would treat cigarette smoking in kids. The industry says e-cigarettes are supposed to help adults quit conventional smoking. In a statement, a spokesman for the popular Juul says no young person or non-nicotine user should ever try Juul. But he didn't say how minors who started might quit. Gregory Conley of the American Vaping Association says most teens may be able to quit on their own. It's only a small sliver that may actually need some assistance to get off the products. Colorado's health department disputes that. It estimates 10% of high schoolers are vaping nicotine more than 10 days a month. 
Conley says cessation programs used for adult smokers may also work effectively for teens vaping e-cigarettes. And he says most teens who vape are just trying it out. Non-habitual users who are experimenting with the product, which is most of the teen usage, don't really need any sort of quit program. They just need to decide that they're not going to use it anymore. Some communities are trying to make the decision to quit easier. Broomfield, a vaping hotspot, just started something new. On a recent summer evening, families stream past a booth set up outside a local rec center. Teens drop vaping devices in a bucket as they walk past. Veronica Mueller, Broomfield's fitness supervisor, says some kids turning them in seemed pretty young. Unfortunately, I would say 12. The county gives minors who hand in their devices a free pass to use the rec center all summer an incentive to give up the habit. One teen who stopped by, named Delilah, said that gave her the push she needed. I turned in my vapes. That way I can get a three-month rec center pass because I like to swim. And I don't want to ruin my brain with nicotine. She's 14 and says she vaped for four months to relieve stress. Then her mom found out and got mad, so Delilah decided to quit. Her mom, whose name is Femi, says she hopes that's the end of it. I'm addicted to cigarettes, and I started at 15, and my mom never stopped me. I don't want her to go through the same addictions with nicotine that I struggle with, because it's hard to quit. She's right to be concerned. Research shows that many teens who vape nicotine will go on to be smokers of traditional cigarettes, a habit, as Femi says, that is notoriously hard to break. I'm John Daly, CPR News. It's a real dilemma. Teens here are vaping a lot. But if they want to kick the habit, they're often on their own. You see, vape products don't fall under the state's nicotine tax, which pays for cessation programs. In response, National Jewish Health, based in Colorado, has launched its own program for teens. It's called My Life, My Quit Thomas Ilioya is the clinical director of health initiatives at National Jewish, and he joins us. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You are a smoking cessation expert. If Colorado doesn't deal with the vaping dilemma that we've been describing, what are the consequences for these teens? Like, what's what's the future likely to hold for them? Really good question, Ryan. And, you know, one of the things that is most concerning is that we know that nearly 90% of adults who currently use a nicotine product, mostly cigarettes, started when they were teens. And so when we see teens starting using nicotine using electronic cigarettes, we're really concerned about what the future means for them. Uh, There is research showing that teens who start with vaping are much more likely, as much as four times more likely, to go on to smoke cigarettes as adults. So they start with vaping products and then they go on to traditional cigarettes. So this is interesting because it flies in the face of what industry has told us, which is vaping is a way to step down from smoking traditional cigarettes. Can you speak to that for a little bit? You know, when it comes to teens who are using these products, the choice is not for them is not about whether or not they're going to smoke cigarettes or smoke or, or use an electronic cigarette. The choice is really about whether or not they're going to use an electronic cigarette or just breathe clean air. And I think the choice is really clear for them that the any kind of nicotine in, uh, device is not going to be helpful for them and that just sticking with clean air is probably going to be the best thing they can do. Because they're just less inclined to start with traditional cigarettes? 
the rates of teens who are using combustible cigarettes has gone down dramatically. And, th- and that's really a credit to the public health uh, agencies around the country who have really been working to drive down the smoking rate among teens. That's fascinating. But the idea, too, is that if they start by vaping, they may graduate to cigarettes later in life. Okay, so My Life, My Quit evolved from the existing Colorado Quit Line, which is a hotline to help folks quit smoking. And you used to have to be 15 to call. That's been lowered to 12. I just find that remarkable. How is helping teens quit different from helping adults quit? Is it the same thing? There are some similarities. You know, nicotine addiction or nicotine dependence is the same for anybody who's using it. It's working the same way in the brain and in the body. The differences for teens is really when you're looking at uh, how teens are using these products, what their triggers are for using them, who they're using them with. Those are really different than for adults. Okay. Give us a sense of what the triggers are for young people and how that might differ from adults. Sure. So teens are a lot more focused on their peer relationships, their relationships with their parents and with others. So the, the relational side of it is much different for teens, whereas a lot of adults who are already quite dependent on their nicotine uh, delivery system, whether it's cigarettes or electronic cigarettes, tend to be using it more on their own and, and for their own internal motivation, okay. whereas teens I, are more externally motivated. I hear you saying that peer pressure is a real force when it comes to smoking. Absolutely. What we're hearing from teens on, on the quit line and, and have been hearing for a while is that they're using them, they're, the devices are being passed around in their school, in their classroom, in their bathrooms at school, and that they're being presented with these devices in ways that we hadn't seen for a long time when it came to tobacco use. Unbeknownst, mostly to their parents or guardians, do you think? Uh, I, I quite think so. Um, you know, and it's a lot of times one of the motivating factors for teens calling into the quit line has been when parents have caught them and have said, you know, you clearly need some additional help um, and let me see where I can find that assistance. So they've been calling the quit line for the teen. Okay. So parents are critical here. The pressure Absolutely. they exert is influential as well. What would you say to a parent listening? I, I guess, first off, who may not even know their child is using. Do you ask? Sure. So parents, I mean, parents know their children the best, right? So they they see them all the time. They know who their usual friends are. They know what their moods are usually like. And if they're seeing some really rapid changes in suddenly in a whole new social group or uh, the teen is having uh, unusual amounts of irritability or crankiness that's beyond what you'd expect from your teenager, huh. that, that's a time where you could really be thinking about, you know, I've, I've been hearing that nicotine withdrawal has those same kind of symptoms. Is that, a, is that a factor here? And having that conversation, starting that conversation with their uh, child about whether or not nicotine is a factor in their behavior. It does strike me that identity is really important to teens. It's a time when you are building your sense of self. How critical is that discussion as it relates to tobacco, to nicotine? Sure. Yeah, teens are absolutely. That's a a critical time for identity development is during adolescence. Um, And this is one of the things that our coaches will talk to teens about is whether, you know, what their future plans are in terms of who they want to be as a person and how does nicotine and electronic cigarettes fit into that. Um, And that can be a really strong motivator is that teens often look at it and they say, I don't want to be addicted to a substance for the rest of my life. uh, And maybe I want to be able to stop that now. It's also expensive. You know, d- does the money argument work with teens or maybe not if they're on their sort of parents' 
So the downside of it right now is that electronic cigarettes in in many cases are cheaper than combustible cigarettes, as as uh, you heard earlier in the story, is that, you know, because these devices are not taxed in the same way, teens are really able to afford them. But they're also doing, you know, kind of clever things to, to be able to afford them, such as pooling their resources. And that's the idea of passing these vape products around. Right. And they're going, they're chipping in together to buy a pack of, of pods and finding somebody who can buy them for them, or sometimes even being able to buy them from a store themselves. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is smoking cessation expert Thomas Ilioya. He's a clinical director of health initiatives at National Jewish. And we're talking about this idea of helping teens in particular quit vaping uh, because it has all sorts of important consequences for their lives later on, health consequences for sure. Could we do a little role playing? Like, let's pretend I'm a teen, though those years are far behind me. Uh, what would a conversation sound like with a teen? And, and how might that uh, differ from an adult? Sure. So one of the things that our coaches are will talk to a teen about really um, early on in the conversation is how nicotine is part of their life. So are they using it in school? Are they, you know, where are the places in, around the school that they're using it? Do they have any friends that are not using these products? And can they, you know, how can they uh, increase the amount of time that they spend with the teens who are not using these products instead of the ones who are? And what ways can you avoid being triggered by that? How can you say no if somebody is passing you a jewel and saying, do you want to hit? What does it take to say no to that person? Um, do you need to, you know, make What does a, it take to say no? Well, sometimes, you know, teens need to be clever about it. And, and sometimes we'll tell them this is the one time where you might want to have a, a story that you can quickly use. Like, you know, I'm, I'm really preparing for this track meet and I'm really concerned about how this might impact my performance. So I really don't want to use it right now. Right. And so kind hmm. of delaying it and putting it off so that they have a, a story that they can have in their head about how they can uh, be able to say no and still save face in front of their friends. So coaching is clearly a part of this My Life, My Quit program. And it sounds like the coaches are investigating what about your environment is enabling you to, to vape. Uh, do I hear that right? Absolutely. So, I mean, we know that nicotine, um, the triggers to use nicotine are often environmental or situational. So yeah. what are some of those environmental places? Like your school, like, you know, is it when every time you're walking home from school, is it first thing in the morning? Um, and what are some of the other, uh, you know, emotional states or situations that you find yourself in where nicotine is a big part of it? Is it when you're feeling down or depressed uh, and finding different ways of coping with the changes in mood that come with giving up nicotine. Does interacting with teens mean not doing so over a, a phone line, but by text, for instance? Certainly, we know that a lot of teens want to be able to use uh, technology and new technology to be able to communicate with others. So we still have the phone line, but one of the things that we did with the My Life, My Quit program is allow teens to also text the same toll-free number to interact with a coach. They can and also a coach go, is te texting back. Uh, exactly. So there, it's a it's a live text messaging uh, back and forth conversation between the teenager, and the person who's using the the product, and the coach that they have on the other end of the line. That's free. It's all free. Huh. Um, so we, uh, Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment supported development of this program. And so because of that, we're able to offer it for free in Colorado. This is interesting because National Jewish Health operates the quit line for 16 states. That's right. Numerous health plans. All of that, the nerve center is in Colorado. What is the track record in general for this program? Does it work? 
So our, our quitline programs are very effective for helping people with quitting tobacco, um, whether it's uh, smoking cigarettes, uh, smoking a pipe, a cigar, chewing tobacco, or electronic cigarettes. We're what does very successful mean? So for people who are engaging in the coaching and are able to use the medications, um, such as nicotine replacement therapy, as many as, as high as 40% of them will, go, will be quit at, at six months after they enroll in the program. So that's a really high success rate. That word replacement seems really important to me. What do you replace smoking, vaping with? So the nicotine replacement therapies um, for are only approved for people who are over 18, which is one of the challenges that, that we hear about for uh, people who are under 18. We can't offer them any of the medications. We're talking about the patch, for instance. Nicotine patch, gum, lozenges um, that are really help to help uh, for people, for adults who are trying to quit, they're able to use these products to manage the withdrawal symptoms from nicotine. But that's just not available to younger people. That's right. So, you know, we don't offer it through the My Life, My Quit program. If a teenager, you know, has a really high level of nicotine dependence, which can come from some of these products that they're using, we refer them back to their doctor to, to talk about whether or not medications might be an option. Okay. For them. So it's not impossible that medication uh, could apply to young people, but it's just not something that the state can be doling out. Uh, what, what do you tell young people to replace vaping with, though? I mean, are we talking about chewing gum or what? Sure, absolutely. Anything that's going to, you know, handle that, uh, the feeling of needing to have something in, uh, uh, you know, in your mouth and being able to do something with your hands, something to, to keep your hands busy, chewing on toothpicks like we heard in the story. Those are all really good strategies to, to deal with some of those cravings. The cravings are short-lived. They only last about, you know, up, you know, a few minutes before they kind of wear off and go away. It's like a wave. Absolutely. There's been a lot of talk about how to fight teen vaping in Colorado. Boulder City Council is looking at a flavor ban with the idea that flavors lure kids. Uh, that's something Aspen's already done, actually. Also, last year, the legislature considered raising the tobacco tax and taxing vape products. That ultimately failed, but Governor Polis talked to me about revisiting the idea. Right now, uh, vaping escapes the tobacco tax entirely, and yet it is a nicotine product. We view the tobacco tax is a nicotine tax, and we don't think that vaping should be subsidized, in effect, by not being subject to the same types of pricing and regulation that regular tobacco products are. Before we go, what does history tell us about how taxation affects use? So we know that taxation is one of the best strategies out there to, to reduce uh, overall tobacco product use at the population level. Um, some of the estimates are that about 10% of people who use tobacco will quit for every dollar increase in the price of tobacco products. And we've already reflected on the accessibility of price, especially for young people. Um, I do want to ask, to what extent is the vaping industry responsible for addressing this, do you think? Uh, it's a really good question, and it's a tricky one. The The tobacco industry has never had a really good track record of being able to prevent youth from using tobacco. There's, they've tried multiple times over the, over the decades. I, I, you know, they don't really have a motivation to stop teens from using their products because the teens are, their, are the customers of the future, and tobacco companies have been doing that for decades. You're not optimistic a solution will come from them. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Thomas Ilioya is Clinical Director of Health Initiatives at National Jewish and oversees the new My Life, My Quit program to help teens quit using nicotine products. Up next, remembering Toni Morrison through the eyes of a Colorado storyteller. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Legal marijuana is green. Factually, it just is green. Well, as an industry, it's actually not very green at all. 
on the latest episode of the new podcast from CPR called On Something. We take a look at one guy in Gypsum, Colorado, who is trying his darndest to grow weed with the smallest carbon footprint possible. Zero carbon footprint, in fact. Listen to On Something on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's listen to the late author and editor Toni Morrison now, an excerpt from the lecture she gave while accepting the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1993. This is about the limits and the power of words. Language can never pin down slavery, genocide, war, nor should it yearn for the arrogance to be able to do so. Its force, its felicity, is in its reach toward the ineffable. Be it grand or slender, borrowing, blasting, or refusing to sanctify, whether it laughs out loud or is a cry without an alphabet, the choice word, the chosen silence, Unmolested language surges toward knowledge, not its destruction. Toni Morrison died Tuesday at age 88. She was the first black woman to win the Nobel in Literature. She also won the Pulitzer in 1988 for Beloved. One of the writers she inspired was Ruth Ellen Coker, a poet and an associate dean at CU. And Coker joins us from Boulder. Ruth Ellen, welcome back to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. You describe learning about Morrison's death as feeling like losing your breath. Will you explain that? Well, like any of those moments that we're confronted with in our lives when something's happened that seems extraordinary and almost impossible, I gasped. I don't think that it was until that moment that I truly acknowledged Toni Morrison's mortality, given her bigger-than-life presence in American culture. Hmm. There's a, an invincible, a timeless quality to her and to her work, I think I hear you saying. Absolutely. Invincible not only in the way she uh, created great, gravity with her writing, her novels, her fiction, her characters, but also in her essays and in her speeches and in her own activism and in the way that she fostered hands-on generations of writers that came after her earliest work. Including yourself and your generation. Uh, Take me back to the first time you encountered her work. What was it like? I encountered her work for the very first time as an undergraduate student in an upper division course on the novel. It was a course at Penn State University, and it was a mixed registration, which means it was half graduate students and half advanced undergraduates. It was the first time I'd been in a course where there was a novel introduced by a black author let alone a black female author. There was a way that I felt uncomfortable in the class, as though there were secrets, family secrets, that were being exposed among 
all of those white bodies in the class. But there was another way that being present and being part of the discussion made me feel as though I had a certain authority that I hadn't felt before, an authority to speak and to share my comments and to assert my interpretations in a way that I was perhaps a little timid to do when I was talking about Melville or Updike or mm. anyone um, of some other subject position. Uh, we're having a little. So Toni Morrison made me feel a little bit more present as a reader. We're having just a little bit of trouble with our connection. I want to apologize for that. But uh, do I understand that this first novel was The Bluest Eye? Yes, it was The Bluest Eye. And while The Bluest Eye was published in 1970, I took this class in about 1982. Uh, so it found its way onto the syllabus, and 12 years later, it was the first time I'd ever heard of it. Huh. I think of that book as, as being so much about a, a dark-skinned black girl who wishes so much that she looked different, that she was white. Mm-hmm. Is that a feeling you identified with? No, not at all. Strangely enough, I had a different background than Morrison. I was raised in a community of poor white people by poor white parents. My difference was significant and obvious and immediate all the time. And so encountering the character in that book was a way for me to encounter another black girl another black girl who could be my friend, and to understand how she felt about her blackness. I felt a certain way about my blackness, but I embraced it as something special among other people who were very different from me. And it was heartbreaking for me to read the story of this young girl mm. who wanted so very much to be different and other than what she was. And I wanted to reach out and tell that girl that she was special and that she was chosen. I watched a lovely new documentary recently about Toni Morrison called The Pieces I Am. And at one point, um, it, it talked about how her early books were essentially ghettoized. I mean, reviewers thought if you were writing about black people, that meant it was for a black audience. Do you still see signs of that dynamic today for writers of color? Very much so. I've encountered it in my own writing career and my own writing life. There's a sense that to write about the black subject means that you also own a specific aesthetic. However, there are black writers who work in many genres. There are experimental black writers. There are narrative black writers. There are lyric black writers. But as you said, the work of black writers has been ghettoized and seen as maybe a genre in and of itself that is somehow homogeneous. And there couldn't be anything further from the truth, just as there's no homogeneous community of black bodies or black people. We differ in the way we look, in the kinds of communities we grew up in, in the financial circumstances that we've experienced, 
um, wildly across the board. Toni Morrison is known for being a vivid writer. I mean, she depicts in great detail both violence and hardship, uh, particularly in Beloved. Why do you think she used that tool? Well, it's interesting because the difficulty of Beloved makes it a text that's very difficult to handle in the classroom. Yeah. But I I will say that prior to Morrison and then prior to the mid-century black male writers that came before her, there was a way that writers tried to romanticize blackness perhaps so that it wasn't as off-putting or scary to those white readers. I see. Sometimes writing became a performance of expected blackness because this is what the white reader would expect from a black voice or a black body. And, uh, and I'd say that expected blackness also needed to occupy a certain element of, um, let's say, safety. And we couldn't have a black voice that didn't feel safe. The idea of threat, of anger, of violence, of hardship, those were the things that uh, were associated with blackness that some black writers wanted to move away from and white audiences didn't want to encounter. So we have a lot of safe black characters that are being written in the early part of the 20th century. And Morrison put that away. And if anything, she embraced the risk of really showing and articulating the brutality of existence that many black bodies have no choice but to encounter. Do you think that you'll be rereading Morrison's books now? And, and maybe you reread them uh, as a matter of course in any case. I've... I've I've read her novels many times because I've taught them often. Mm-hmm. I'm actually currently reading what I think is the last book that came out in print, which is not a novel. It is the source of self-regard, selected essays, speeches, and meditations. And I find this Morrison, this voice of Morrison, uh, to have so much authority and so much weight so much reflection on the era in which she lived that is informing me today in the moment that I'm taking these words of wisdom slowly as I'm making my way through this book. One thing that just has struck me over the years about Toni Morrison is that uh, she was a beautiful writer, but she she was a beautiful speaker. I mean, when she spoke, and it seemed to be extemporaneous, it was poetry that flowed from her. Did you find that? Absolutely. And that's what you find present in this book. There's a passage here that I can read to you that I think is a great example. Yeah, we have about a minute, Um, uh, Ruth Ellen. Sure. She says, how can a woman be viewed and respected as a human being without becoming a male-like or male-dominated citizen? For a variety of complex reasons, the final answer is not in yet, but it is impossible not to come to the dreary conclusion that chief among these reasons is our own conscious and unconscious complicity with the forces that have kept sexism the oldest class oppression in the world. 
This casual or deliberate treason is like a bone lodged in the throat of every woman who tries to articulate the present condition of women. Why don't we leave with those words of Toni Morrison, read by Ruth Ellen Coker, poet and an associate dean at CU Boulder. Morrison, the first black woman to win the Nobel Prize for Literature, died Tuesday at age 88. And that's Colorado Matters from CPR News. Glad you could spend time with us today. I'm Ryan Warner.